This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with author and pastor Danielle Schroyer. I came across Danielle's book, Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place, last year, about this time, actually, and I reached out to her, and uh, we talked in the early spring of, of 2018. And I just somehow refound our conversation. It, it flew under the radar until today. And I'm sorry, Danielle, but for me personally, it couldn't be better timing. I just was, uh, spending some time with my family over the holidays and, and reflecting on the differences in our understanding of, of life and, and, how, how we live it and why, and how that's evolved for me as I stepped out of my Lutheran and Christian upbringing and into another form of spiritual exploration. And, you know, finally to this day, being a student of Ramdas himself and delving deeper into Buddhism and yogic traditions across the spectrum. So, what I loved about this book of Danielle's is how connected it is and how almost exactly parallel the, the teachings and the understandings are to those of my teacher and of the different texts that I have been investigating outside of Christianity over the last several years. And so in this moment of, you know, healing between myself and my family, and also just in this cultural moment that we're in with, uh, you know, the polarization and the differences and the standing up and rigidly in your own beliefs. This conversation to me is a balm to that in that it's very clear that we are all looking for this uh, loving and and nurturing place in God, in spirit, in our relationship with the one. And 
So I just found it to be super healing for me to have this talk and to listen back to it again this week. And very excited to share it with you all here. And I hope that you will not only listen and enjoy, but take a look into Danielle's writings and her book, Original Blessing. And she has a new release of an older book coming out this March too. So maybe we'll get back to talking to her about that again this year. Please do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. You can also follow along at Shakti Hour on Twitter and Facebook. And we have the Shakti Sacred Music Series continuing next month with four more wonderful guests. If you want to catch up on that, you can go to ShaktiSacredMusic.com. And as always, all of this information is on the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com along with all the wonderful podcasts and offerings from the network. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year and enjoy this chat with Daniel Schroyer. I was doing some writing and um, I was writing about sin. And um, I, I just typed into the internet, you know, you know, what is sin? <laughs> And, um, and somehow I came on a, on an article, like a blog about your book. Oh, that makes me happy that it was starting with the question, what is sin? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's something that I was kind of thinking about and, um, kind of, un, un, it was unsuspected. It kind of came up unsuspected in some right, some like a morning free write I was doing and, and just thinking about, um, you know, what is sin and sin and something I had written, I written sin equals death. I didn't know what, I wasn't thinking that out. It just like, I wrote that down. So then I was like, goodness, I have to look into this because I don't, I haven't rethought about sin since I've been on a real spiritual path. And I was raised Lutheran. Wisconsin, oh, okay. Wisconsin synod Lutheran. <laughs> okay. And then moving to, to evangelical later in, in my life. But, um, I was raised Lutheran. And so I get your book and, and you, you write down what is original sin and you, you tell us in here in the most basic terms, you know, argues two things. One, Adam and Eve permanently shifted our nature, you know, they ate the apple, blah, blah, blah. And two, that nature has been passed down to us from there. Then you kind of lay out the, the Catholics, the Methodists, you know, the reformed. And then finally you get to the Lutherans (laughs) and it's this super dark, heavy, (laughs) no way you're ever, you're, you're wicked, awful. You're never going to be able to be saved basically, but you better try, but you're probably not. Right. And, <laughs> and so I definitely, I definitely was like, okay, that's deeply ingrained mm-hmm. somewhere in me. And, right. um, and so I just was thrilled to find your writing and from a, from a Christian perspective, because, um, uh, I love the Christian faith, you know, and I was raised, you know, in it, and somehow I got a pass. I got a a very intellectual, Jesus-centered 
pastor along the way who when uh, I was really questioning as a teenager, he put me in that direction. So I never really had to cut, you know, a lot of people cut their relationship with their initial faith yeah. in order yes. to explore a new one. So I never really had to do that. But <laughs> I hadn't looked at sin and the programming around sin. Yeah. And so finding your book and your and your point of view on it has been super enlightening. Great. So that's the long inter <laughs> interlude to say, you know, tell me about your story, uh, your story with how you came to how you came to this understanding of sin and what your relationship with this has been uh, in your faith journey uh, from the beginning until now. Yeah, I, I feel like in, in a lot of ways, this is a question that I've had forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I was just born asking this question of like, I'm not sure what you're telling me church about sin is the thing that I agree with. And certainly that Genesis three story, I just remember even as a child in Sunday school thinking, I don't, I think something's wrong about the way they're saying that story. Huh. And, um, you know, you're, you're not always taught, I think, to listen to your intuition in those things, especially I think when it's connected to religious authority. And I certainly did not grow up in any sort of fundamentalist background at all, but you know, still you kind of think, well, the adults obviously know what they're talking about. But as a child, I know that the thing I understood the most was that I just really did feel deeply connected with God. Hmm. And so when, when it came to the point where in West Texas Baptist life, they said, well, your problem is that you're, you're separated from God. I just did not feel that that was my problem. I might have had other problems, but that was for sure not the one that I was mm. concerned about. And so uh, that kind of needled, you know, needled my brain for a really long time. And then, you know, I had no idea I would actually become a pastor because I never really have fit in church contexts at all. Um, but I did find myself at seminary looking at that question a lot. I studied Hebrew in college for four years as my language of choice. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me because you read Hebrew and you realize that that language is so much more poetic than didactic. And so mm. when we get into these really forced answers about doctrinal things based on Hebrew texts, I always just think, nope, <laughs> that is not mm. the way it's going to get read if you read it in Hebrew, which is why, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters are so much more about storytelling than they are about doctrine hmm. because that's what the language is like. It's so much more poetic and narrative than it is, you know, hmm. Western rationality. And I found that to be so beautiful. I found hmm. that to deepen my faith so much. So when I landed as a pastor um, who was sort of focused on people who didn't fit in church like I didn't, a lot of them came from these fundamentalist backgrounds where they were really taught not to trust themselves, not to trust their bodies, um, not to trust that they could do the right thing, mm -hmm. to be super skeptical of other people. And just on a practical level, not even a theological level, but a practical one, I just thought that's not really working to help them be better people in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, in any case, not even just as someone who's trying to do what Jesus says that we should do, but just as a decent human being, period. Mm -hmm. It was really destructive for people to think that. And so 
that's kind of where the practical pastor part of my questioning joined with that needling in my mind that started, I think, when I was really young. And I started to say, there's got to be another sort of theological way out of this practically. And so, um, yeah, I took the time to really look into it and, of course, started to think, well, gosh, what if this could be a narrative about about just childhood and coming of age? And am I the only person who's ever thought that? And then, of course, you read Jewish uh, commentaries on that story and you read Eastern Orthodox commentaries on that story and realize, well, of course, no, I'm not the first person that's had that idea. And so I felt so empowered that I found and, and sort of rediscovered there's this really rich tradition within Christian history and within all of the Abrahamic religions that is so affirming of the way that I saw the world, which is that we are deeply connected to God. And so for me, mm. sin is when we lose that connection, hmm. not this sense in which we have to try to fix this separateness, right? But it's right. But so that and so and that was the read. That's been the read, or often the majority of the read is that. Well, yeah, you were connected, but then right, and then that apple, and now you know, too bad you had this tiny little window of time to maintain that connection and and live in paradise and. You messed it up. So, you know, so the rest of society is built off of that. Yeah. And, and, um, there's two things I want to ask you, but, uh, I want to go back and, and explore your, your path a little bit more, but, but I want to jump ahead to, <laughs> to just say, you know, I don't, I, in your book, you, you allude to this thousand first thousand years of Christianity in the next thousand years. Is there, can you shed more light on that transition of the celebration of life to the horror of death? Like, can you give me a little more perspective on, on, on from your studies and investigation, what happened in that time period? Why did that shift? Is it, is it clear or yeah, you know, it's funny. Someone, I was with a group of women at a Presbyterian church just last week uh, that had just finished studying the book, and they asked that same exact question. Huh. Uh, and I I said, well, I'll tell you what I didn't put in the book, which is I think it just has to do with power. Uh-huh. <laughs> to be honest, um, it, I mean, a short crash course, and of course, this is really vastly simplifying it, but when Constantine um, became the emperor and he decided that Christianity was going to be the religion of the empire. That was a turning point in Christian history because before that time, Christianity was actually always a religion of the oppressed peoples. Hmm. It was the scripture was a book of oppressed people. No one in power or authority Hmm. was ever given that book. And so I always say it's really dangerous for, for me as an American who is in a position of great power. And for me as like a, a, you know, fairly well-to-do, educated white woman, that i it's really dangerous for me to read scripture because I have to remember all the time that it was written for oppressed people. Hmm. And so for me to think that it's talking about me, I'm generally the bad person that, you know, like, not that I'm the villain, but you know what I mean? Instead of assuming that I'm the hero in all the stories, like I have to sort of be mindful of it. So that's one of the dynamics I think that's kind of hard for American Christianity to understand um, is that we often have 
written about theology from a, the perspective of power when actually the book is written from the underside of power. Um, so when Constantine became the emperor and decided that Christianity was going to be the empire of the state, we became the people in power. And then it became, okay, how do we convince people to come to church? How do we, how can we manage, um, you know, holding, holding them all accountable for doing what it is that we're going to tell them to do? And it's just really convenient to do that through fear, I think. And so, you know, you see this in the rite of baptism. Like if you study the way that baptism was changed, it used to be this movement into life. And then it became about um, saving you from sin. And it was the way to be connected to the church and to be a member of the church. And so, you know, it was like the church became this place that could offer you this one thing that only the church could do. And you had to go there to get it. So it was kind of a power play, right? Um, if the church and, and can offer can you, you can you salvation. Can you show, was there any, um, was the insight or was that transition uh, due to power? Or, you know, Constantine, I mean, Constantine himself had an had an awakening, no? Or was, was drawn into yeah. Christian, like wanted to follow Jesus, right? Like there was yeah. an authentic, as far as I understand the story, there's an authentic desire to move into Christianity. But then that authentic desire gets twisted by the seat of power. Or is that everybody I must have that's... the same awakening that I have? <laughs> right, that... yeah. When you sort of demand everyone to have your same spiritual awake- awakening, you kind of lose, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there is that story that says, you know, he had this dream and he saw a picture of the cross and it said, but under this sign you will conquer, which kind of makes me a little questionable because really uh, the cross is about hmm. dying <laughs> and not conquering. But but yeah, so his, I think it says that like his mom was Christian maybe. So anyway, he sort of came back around. And I, I certainly wouldn't say I have any idea what Constantine's spiritual life was <laughs> like. But yeah, I do think that it kind of just got caught up in the power politics of the day. And it is really convenient to move people around by fear and by the sense that that the church is the place that has the authority to give you eternal life and you can't get it outside of it. And mm-hmm. by the way, this is this is why you need it. So it sort of had to create a need. It's like a marketing plan. <laughs> Can you speak more about that authority, that that word authority in relationship to to Jesus as a savior? So the the like how how on earth could you reconcile yourself as the authority and hold and hold Christ as a as a figure? That's you know, I mean that's what you're reconciling for us here. But can you can you speak to that a little that word authority? Yeah, well, and salvation. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. For me, the thing that sticks out as funny in the way that we try to sort of impose religious authority is that if Jesus, you know, if you want to profess that Jesus was the son of God, he didn't actually become a rabbi. (laughs) So like he didn't seem super interested in forms of worldly authority, right? Like he didn't start a synagogue. He didn't start a movement. He just sort of walked around healing people and listening to people and paying attention to people and caring for people. And um, so I'm always skeptical of authority being the thing that is the focus because that just certainly wasn't the case for Jesus. Hmm. And, um, yeah, that's at least where I'd start with that question. And I think that, 
Uh, yeah. So then do so then so this so this is good. So then going back to your own experience, why do you think you were able to feel that sense of authority within yourself? And what is it in the rest of the world that desires like did Constantine create that desire for someone else to have to hold <laughs> that authority or is that human nature? And if it's just human nature, then what was it in you that that gave you the sense of having that sovereignty? Yeah, gosh, and I I don't know. I mean, someone asked me that somewhat recently. Like, how do you feel like you, why did you feel connected to God? And that's just, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, del- I'm, I'm so glad I, I did, but right. I don't, I don't have any idea how that worked. But um, I think it's certainly human nature for us to cede our internal authority to others, especially when we haven't been given the tools to access our own. Hmm. And I think probably it just comes down to the fact that it takes really spiritually mature people to empower others to access their, their own Hmm. authority. And I feel that we could always use more of those people around. (laughs) So, Hmm. um, so for me, you know, as a parent, it's one of my main jobs that I want them to, to really listen to their own intuition and to pay attention to their own bodies and to, to recognize the connectedness that they have within themselves and their souls to God. But I'm not sure that that's, you know, you don't read that in many parenting books. It's sort of like, well, you, you manage their fear and punishment, you know, or consequences. You know what I mean? It's, it's a whole different, it's an entirely different conversation than one that says, let's help people find healthy inner authority, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think especially in the West, because we've been so, um, just designed around as a culture, this idea of original sin, I think we're very skeptical of internal authority. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that sort of troll and come after me in, in, in any context about talking about original blessing usually lead with this fact that like you, how do you know that the, if you're a human that you got it right or whatever. And well, sure, that doesn't, you know, we do get it wrong sometimes, but I don't think the answer to that is to have no internal authority, you know? Um, right, 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 (laughs) right. So it's partially a, a learned thing, but then you also, um, you also referenced spiritual maturity. Yeah. Can you speak more about what that, what that looks like to you or how you see that manifest? Yeah. I, I really think that we have, well, and I can only speak for, you know, Western American church, but I think that we've really undersold the spiritual practices. <laughs> I think that we've upsold um, Bible studies and things that are great, right? If you, if you really are, are doing that well, I think it's really helpful. But, you know, everything that I've learned about human nature, especially in studying for this book, because I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, but I got to read a lot of that when thinking about human nature deeply, you know, we're, we're designed to do what our habits are. And so for me, it just seems like an obvious next step to say, if I'm a, if I'm a minister and my job is to try to help people towards spiritual maturity and whichever religious practice that I have, that comes through spiritual practices and disciplines. And you have to really encourage people to be faithful about those because, that's what changes you. And that's what helps you get out of your bad habits. And that's what Hmm. helps you form new ways of thinking and seeing. And, you know, 
Buddhists understand this, you know, Hindu, my Hindu friends understand this. My Muslim friends who pray five times a day understand it far better than I do. I certainly don't pray five times a day, you know? Um, but I think that we've made it so rational and so, um, intellectually based in much of American Christianity that we've, we've lost that sense of, um, embodying that in, in our actual practices. Right. So. And that, that's the, 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 the prime word there is embodiment. And if you're, or especially with the Lutheran definition of sin, that's the last place that you should spend any time is <laughs> yeah. right. in the physical realm, you know, <laughs> no matter how, how, you know, no matter what it is. And if you do, you better be sure to be ashamed of it. Right. But I, but then, you know, you, you move on, you give us the, you know, give us that overview and then you move on and you have a title or a chapter in the book titled, you can't rush happily ever after. <laughs> and, and, um, and I'll just, you, you say, I generally dislike what if questions because they have a tendency to keep us focused on the past and stuck in coulds, shoulds, woulds, rather than propelling us to move forward. Um, what if, you know, what if the man and the woman never ate from the tree of good and evil? So <sighs> that question in and of itself, it, it's, it's actually kind of a paradoxical question. It holds both sides of the unraveling of this together, unraveling and the keeping it together. So, um, Let's speak a little bit about that. Could you about that, that, that path of, of exploring through that tendency to stay yes. in the questioning? Think, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's false to hmm. say that staying where you are is the right thing, you know, um, um, that hmm. being in the garden of Eden for forever and ever was ever the goal. You know, I think that's just a false view of what the intention was. Mm -hmm. And often when I'm speaking to people, I actually point out um, some basic things in the texts of Genesis 2 that point out that, um, and I won't get into the details of it, but that point out that that in that narrative, which is like there's two creation narratives, one's in Genesis 1 and then the kind of lesser known one is in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, it's very clear that God has created the fertile field. So this in, in Hebrew, there's always this repetitiveness that's that you pay attention to. And so fertile field keeps coming up, fertile field, fertile field. And then in the fertile field, there's this garden. So you get this sort of topology that the garden is this tiny, tiny part of this whole fertile field. And that you can tell in Genesis 2 that it was God's intention, it says, for there to be people who tended the fertile field. So you can see where the story is going. I mean, that's classic foreshadowing that, of course, it's not the story's not going to stay in the garden. The, gar the story is going to move out into the fertile field. It's like hmm. who stays in this one corner when there's this whole universe to explore. Right. And so I think that's the first thing to shift is that, you know, to say that it was this traumatic tragedy for this, um, you know, moment of eating the fruit in the garden. It wasn't. It was the thing that propelled, propelled the story forward. And it was always mm. intended to leave the garden. Like that's mm. the point. So, so my point in sort of re looking at that story is to say, I think that God's intention in scripture is to show a whole bunch of people who are pursuing wisdom. Some of them do it well, and most of them do it badly. And you learn from both of those things, right? but that you, you really cannot possibly grow in spiritual maturity or towards wisdom if you don't, first of all, have 
the opportunity to choose either good or evil and also the opportunity to make mistakes. Like that's, that's just generally how you grow. And mm-hmm. so, um, I don't see that story at all as something that's a tragedy. It's of God saying, okay, good. We're at the, we're at the point now where they do have the knowledge of good and evil. And now the good stuff will start practicing happening. Like now they get to go out and try to figure out what it means to be a wise person in the world. Hmm. And that only happens in the, in the fertile field. It's not going to happen in the garden. Right. Right. Uh, Ram Dass, my teacher, calls it grist for the mill, right? This is polishing the mirror yes. of the heart. Yes. Polishing the mirror of the heart. So you go into the world, your karma, your experiences, your life experiences are unfolding, as you say, with the intention of your wisdom and maturity and that you need those experiences just like if you were uh, having some spices and you wanted to release the flavor (laughs) into your food so it was integrated you have to grind them and and change them and cook them in order for that to to happen but it's so um you know even just as you were saying that is it's like no it was never the intention to stay in the garden (laughs) <laughs> I was breathing this, you know, this sigh of relief. And it really, to me, it just is so, um, so culturally ingrained and so much a part of even just the capitalist mindset that you, your, you know, your, your, your face is meant to age, right? But you shouldn't, you know, <laughs> right. and, and yeah. you, you know, your, your car should always be shiny. Your lawn should always be this way. These things, this constant, um, things should not be changing. They should not uh, deteriorate. Relationships shouldn't end. You know, at some point there's a, it's failure, failure, failure. And and it's at your cause, your fault. It's your fault. And here and deeply in the idea of original sin, it's your fault beyond any possibility of salvation, you know? Right. And, and, um, when I, when I was reading your book at first, I was like, I can't believe that, um, that she gets away with saying this in, the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the church, cause it really is so radical to, of a shift of perspective for, um, people that are, have been, or are involved in, in Christian church. But I would say just the whole of, of Western culture under this umbrella of not good enough Un- unworthiness, you know, my uh, Ramdas also says that he says your trouble is you're too busy holding on to your unworthiness. That mm. that is like so true. The grasp of holding on to that is part of that mm-hmm. blocking of the polishing of the mirror of the heart. And so you're so yeah. calm, <laughs> so calm and clear in your presentation of it. Um, I'm, I'm just curious about the, the conflict that has, I'm curious about the grist for the mill in your unfolding in this belief and sharing it with others and, and sharing this perspective and how that's, how that's unfolded for you in your relationships, yeah. you know, within the church or in your familial relationships or friendships, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I've always sort well yeah I've always kind of been on the outskirts so I'm okay with being on the fringe because that's just 
where the space that I've occupied. So Mm -hmm. I've kind of gotten used to that, which is probably a good preparation for being able to say something that's certainly going to be outside of what Mm -hmm. Western, the Western church thinks is orthodox. Mm -hmm. But part of my boldness too, did come from the fact that I was like, you know what, the Eastern Orthodox church has been around forever and they, you know, well, since, you know, since the beginning and they still don't believe in this original sin stuff. And Mm -hmm. that just really empowered me to say, they've been stubborn about it all these years and maybe I can be too. And you know, the Celtic Christians, they just were like, yeah, spirituality is embodied and we're going to bless everything and nature is holistic and we are part of God. You know, they just saw everything is so together and connected. And if they can be that stubbornly true to that, then I can too. So I do feel like I was so, so you found empowered. some in, you found some alliances within the yes. faith. Yeah. Yes. And of course, you know, then it was so lovely to have conversations beyond Christianity because I'm not, you know, I'm kind of a universalist at heart. And so I just want people to have really deep spiritual lives and whatever that looks like for them, I'm great with. Mm-hmm. And talking to my Buddhist friends and saying, oh, yeah, we call that basic human goodness. That's the thing we know, you know, oh, okay. And then mm-hmm. my Muslim friends who said, yeah, we, we think it's weird what you guys say about <laughs> original mm-hmm. sin. And of course, lots of my Jewish friends who said, yeah, you guys do not read that Genesis text the right way. <laughs> so having all of these mm-hmm. people, I mean, it's funny. I had um, someone on an, on a radio show say like, gosh, you know, don't you feel like you're stepping outside of orthodoxy? And I, and I really, I answered and truly still believe, no, I think they are out of orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I think Western Christian Christianity, Mm -hmm. that one branch of all the Abrahamic faiths is the only one who believes this. And so I do feel empowered at this point to say, I think they're the erring child and the rest of us have have sort of held Mm -hmm. on to this, you know, more original truth. That, that even is so true that it's not even just cap- encapsulated in Christianity, but it's encapsulated across faith traditions, which just seems to empower it even more for me. Well, and that's why this was so meaningful to me to stumble, literally stumble upon your work, <laughs> because it helped me. It's helping me to reconcile that within in myself, because I didn't I, I have, you know, I often run into people um and most of my family is still is Lutheran. And I often run into people who, ha- who were raised Christian or Catholic, some variety. And they're so, they so want to shut that down yeah, completely. Yeah. And, and because I had this, you know, I was blessed with this pastor that this one time who, who took me into some of the deeper, you know, teachings of Jesus that gave me a, a way to stay connected I was really happy to find your voice in that faith speaking truths in the way that I'm hearing them through, you know, my new practices in, in bhakti yoga and other traditions. And um, so that's one thing. And it is a big healing. It's a big healing to be able to hold, to hold that and to be mm-hmm. confident in it. And so I'm grateful for, for your, um, bravery <laughs> and commitment to that. Um, you. there's, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, so back to the garden, you also write, we can see the garden as a universal description of our relationship with God. There are times when we walk closely with God and there are times when we question and disobey. And to me, now that is like a perspective 
I'll just keep reading for a second, actually. When we misstep, God remains committed to us, but we also live in a connected world where consequences are a natural response to movement away from God. As we recognize the realities of life away from God, we are encouraged to move toward God once again, trusting that new life awaits us. So when I read that, it feels like very maternal. (laughs) You know? It feels yeah. like um, the the mother point of view. Mm-hmm. And so that's the one thing in the Christian faith. You know, who knows what the Holy Spirit is, right? Father. Well, we've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I know that there are women throughout these stories, but for you to take this understanding and present it that way to me feels very much from the feminine perspective and the feminine digestion of this teaching. What can you, you know, cause otherwise who do we relate to in the, right. in the story, you know, the immaculate conception of this woman, you know, Mary, you know, um, who's very, Un, unembodied, <laughs> literally doesn't, you know, gives birth without any kind of, you know, body issue, <laughs> body okay. engagement, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> but I think you hear what I'm saying, you know. It's no, like, I do hear what you're saying. Well, and I was like, oh, this will, I'm sure if any Christian person hears me, they're going to for sure sign me off after this. But the interesting thing about that passage is, that um, you're right, the spirit isn't technically gendered. And of course, God isn't technically gendered in a lot of, of, of the text as well. Mm-hmm. Jesus certainly is, and um, that's fine. But the spirit in the Hebrew scriptures is always feminine. It's, it's embodied as Sophia, wisdom, mm-hmm. um, who is a, you know, a beautiful woman who's calling to you and trying to get you to, to turn towards her instead of these other things. Um, and so you can imagine the spirit of God, um, sort of hovering over Mary and it's like an overly feminine image actually. Mm. <laughs> um, anyway, just as a random aside, that's, cool, that's, yeah. that's kind of cool that it's yeah. like just all the ladies in there, um, <laughs> that all this feminine energy is what brings, um, mm. Jesus, the son of God to, to bear on the world who is of course so embodied that it's so weird that Christians ever try to not be embodied. Like mm. the thing is that we say that God got embodied in a human. So it seems like that should be obvious to us, but, um, and now I've forgotten the rest of your question. Oh, this well, idea the coming God- back, this, this nurturing, you know, the mother, yes. you know, you go out, you go outside, you skin your yes. knee, you come back yes. in. I told you not to climb on that wall. You know, you, yes. then you come back. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to climb on the, you know, right. that's, yeah. that's a very uh, maternal read of, of a relationship with, with Christ, with God. Yes. I, and I do think that, that God is, such a loving parent. I mean, that's mm. the that's the visual that we see in that story in Genesis. Mm. And it's so sad that we've made God to be this sort of dictator type of angry father, when I do think it's much more maternal that, you know, God is walking with mm. them and checking on them and, you know, asking such a mom question, which is, who told you that you didn't have any clothes on? <laughs> which, you know, like, that's such a mom thing to say, you know, like, <laughs> it's like this sideways of let me tell me more, like, okay, how did tell me more about that. And, 
um, this sort of open inquisition to try to figure out through relationship what's happening here. And, um, you know, clothing, the, the very first thing that happens is that God clothes them and gives them way better clothes than they had provided for themselves and then sends them off, you know, and yeah, there is such a deeply maternal aspect to all of that. And the covenant in itself to me is, you know, an act of trying to put a word on a mother's love, right? That in a covenant, which is simply in Christian, Christian speak, this idea that, there is something unbreakable about the love that God has for us that, that um, we respond in that relationship to that covenant, but that on God's side, it's pretty ironclad. And to me, that does really echo a mother's love, you know, that gosh, there's, I don't, it's not always what I, that I love what my kids have done, but I, I, I just love them endlessly, you know, that they, they can come to me no matter what and know that I'll be there. And uh, I do think that, that we see that echoed in the text. Yeah, and as just as you were speaking about it, I, I was thinking, oh well, maybe that's part of the distortion as well that I'm identifying that as only motherly, <laughs> and that maybe that you know we we're selling the the masculine short on the paternal connection also to to his children and and his desire to nurture in that way as well, you know, yeah. and that and that we just have separated that out. Maybe that was part of the separation that happened too when we started to focus on sin and right and wrong and power, you know, yeah. and that, that, that actually could have been, could have been whole. We could see, we can give men that capacity. <laughs> we can give <laughs> masculine that capacity to have that depth of love and, you know, compassion and nurturing as well. Yeah. And I wish that men would listen to that calling more in so many of the other stories, like the story of the good shepherd and the shepherd's certainly a man who's mm. seeking after, you know, who cares for the sheep and who goes after the one um, when it's lost and who, you know, yeah, is just so mindful. And then you think, yeah, there are so many stories, the prodigal son who comes home and the father is so excited to welcome him home. And, you know, there are lots of, of I think, parables and stories in the text mm. that are trying to, I think, encourage men to be more <laughs> kind of to lean toward their femininity, right? Right. And, and um, it's sad to me that we, in those situations are okay with it being God, but we never equate it to it being masculine, which I think is actually kind of funny, right? So, so yeah, I, I at least in the, the way that I, I explain the Trinity is I say sort of that God is the wholeness of, of feminine and masculine together is the unity. Mm. And then Jesus is the masculine, you know, most perfectly personified and that, that the spirit is the feminine most perfectly personified and sort of creative life giving, you know, moving all around without boundaries kind of thing. And I think if you see all three of those things, not much is outside anymore, you know, hmm. whereas I think in the traditional understanding, there are some things that get lost. And I worry about that because hmm. it, you know, we get lost, we lose our wholeness when we don't personify those things fully. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and I think that to your point about spiritual maturity, that part of what, you know, spiritual practices do is give you a framework and a guide so that you can expand into that ephemeral, spiritual, feminine, shakti, mm -hmm. uh, chaos realm <laughs> of possibility in a way that gives you um, a, a strength and capacity to relate to it and to allow it to permeate 
to permeate your life. And when you, like you said, when you take away that maturity, you take away those practices, then that's, that's scarier than the cross. <laughs> you know? yes. That's scarier than, than, you know, pu- punishment at least is clear. It's like, okay, I did this, <laughs> right. you know, it, it, it's very clear and for sure. And, and, um, you know, having something so vast and, and so loving is, uh, can be overwhelming. You can resist mm-hmm. that. So without having a discipline, without having something rooted and some guidance, it makes sense that we would go, <laughs> it does make sense to a certain degree that then we would want to find some kind of structure and, and, and put that in place. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I, I think we just get in so much trouble when we do that, right? Like um, you were saying about, we, we hold on so tightly to our unworthiness, you know, this mm-hmm. idea that it's, we would just mother, much rather say, just spank me and get it over with. And I know I was bad and I don't have to expect much of myself. You know, it's a much simpler, I mean, you can see why original sin has done so well for itself. It's a yeah. really great marketing tool and it's, you know, fear sells great and yeah. it's very convenient. It, you know, as a mathematical equation, it always makes sense. And I do think there's something about when we're when we're not quite to the place where we can hold that wholeness, I think we moved in our fear towards wanting to have control, right? And so it, there's so much more control actually in original sin, which is so weird because it says you can't trust yourself, but at least you feel like you have control. <laughs> knowing that. Whereas if when you say that you can trust yourself, you realize that, you know, you're supposed to have more control over a whole lot of things. And that by extension makes you feel overwhelmed and slightly out of control. Right. Anyway. Right. But then, and then that keeps feeding on that cycle, which, which I would, you know, I would, I would pose is, is kind of where we're peaking culturally now, you know, with this idea of where we're really struggling with this idea of, um, of winning, you know, Uh like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you write about how Jesus should have been rich and successful and had a good life <laughs> and had success and honor and respect and living like a king. And, you know, and now we're being really faced with that culturally, yeah. like, and, and I think we all bought it to mm-hmm. a certain degree you know, the American dream is kind of based on that idea that if you, if you did X, Y, and Z, then you would be, you know, worthy. You would win. (laughs) And that is, and that is such a simple oversimplification of, of what we're actually doing here. Right. And, and, uh, and, um, You know, you, you go on to say we, 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 we don't realize how gracious God is to refuse our request. <laughs> you know? Right. You know? Because can you imagine if the world really were that mathematical? Yeah. It would just be awful. How awful. You mm. know? We don't really want that world. Mm. So, which maybe is a way of trying to hope that people feel a little comforted when they are maybe reading my book and feeling like they are going to let go of that world that they realize how unsatisfactory it really is, you know, and untrue because as you said, you know, Jesus did everything right and he died. So (laughs) maybe let that go guys and move on towards, (laughs) maybe it was about other things potentially, but 
you know, in the, in the mm-hmm. Hebrew scriptures, the only thing that's promised you in the pursuit of wisdom is that you will receive some. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it doesn't say, I mean, there actually, there's plenty of things that will say, well, you'll have vineyards and you'll have, you know, there are certainly things of abundance. And I think we can hold on to those things, but it's not this sense that it will be American winning, you know, and I think that we could return to that and gain some things. Right. And, and to that point, it's the, the opposite of that is, is so hope is so hopeless, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and that, that, that pushes you, you know, to, you also write about, you know, sin and, and the body and the effects of health and, and vibrancy and, and being vital and, and vibrant. And, you know, it, that kind of thinking that, that pushing literally burns your adrenal glands out, literally shreds your system. So you can't even be present or available <laughs> to mm-hmm. life itself. And, you, you quote uh, Paul from Romans saying, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is a, the, the, the death of the ego, right? This is the, it, this Christianity doesn't talk about the ego, but all the, the Eastern religions and the psycho spiritual movement speaks so much about this amorphous, you know, ego idea mm-hmm. thing. But truly, anyone who has gone along on a spiritual path has had to has had to have this realization that me, the me, me is going to die <laughs> through this process of coming to know God. Yeah. That I never heard that talked about in the church. Okay, <laughs> but it's actually what Jesus t- is actually showing is he's actually playing it out for you. He's like, okay, da, you, da, da, see, then I died and now I'm alive. See, it's really simple. And, and we spend thousands of dollars and buy all these books and go on retreats and do all these things to try and understand this. And I never, ever heard it spoken of in, in the church from yeah. that point of view. Right. Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I can't even, um, uh, I can't, I I don't even know how to go, go forward with that because I don't even know how to relate. I think that's probably the biggest distance between me and, and the church is to not to be able to have that understanding with a, with a Christian friend, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I do think that, you know, especially now, I think so many people have just decided not to buy into something that seems cheap or anti-suffering. And so I think there is now this whole group of Christians, many of whom are writing and speaking, who have just said, we're going to talk about this death and resurrection thing in a way that doesn't mm-hmm. feel appallingly um, victorious all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, too, when I think about um, the minority voices that have been in part of 
Christian mm. theology, like the liberation theology movement and muhidista mm. um, theology. And just, I mean, from all the different continents, they've been trying to tell us that for forever. And we've just been like, la, 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 la. Let's <laughs> talk about how everything's great when you follow Jesus. And I think, you know, if 2018 America has killed anything, I think for a lot of people who are paying attention, it's killed that. And that's great because that did need to die. Mm. You know? mm. um, for a lot of people, they feel like it's just still living on. And I don't know what mm. to do about that, but just have patience and pray. But, mm. but I think a lot of people have wised up and thought, you know, um, let's take another look at this and, and think about what that Jesus dying and resurrection and, mm. you know, all of that means. And yeah, the idea that even resurrection is painful, like the idea that not only to die is painful, but resurrection is also painful. It's beautiful, but <laughs> there's still struggle involved. Right, and, right. Um, yeah, I think that hmm. the church is learning possibly because it's dying and so many people are leaving because they have questions about things like this. Hmm. Um, I think it's learning that... Um, the real beauty in what Jesus had to offer maybe isn't the things that are being said currently, and that's going to have to change. Hmm. Well, and that changes the entire, um, that changes the entire, uh, experience of faith for people though. It's like, um, it's like coming to in the middle of a relationship or a job or, or something and, and having, and being like, wait, who is this person or what am I doing? Or, you know, um, you know, and, uh, and then you, then you're, you're forced to confront that, you know, you're forced to, like you said, the resurrection dying is pain. The resurrection is also painful. And, and that is the, um, <laughs> that is something that, you know, I've gotten, most from Ramdas, I don't know much you know about his story, but you know he taught and lectured for for forty years, and then he had a stroke. Yeah, and and now he's in a wheelchair, and he still teaches and lectures, but he has speech aphasia. But he talks about um, in that moment with his guru saying, "What? Where were you? Like, you know, <laughs> out to lunch? You know, you <laughs> what's with the stroke? You know?" And um, <laughs> I. But he then, he then, um, he talks about the stroke being grace and how it brought him in, you know, and that during that time, everybody was, you know, saying to him, oh, too bad, you had a stroke and too, you know, this is terrible. And he was thinking, no, what's really bad is that I've lost my faith because yeah. I thought I was so faithful and now I had this stroke and what the heck is this about? Yeah. And so then the, the last 20 some years of his life have been that teaching, which is so beautiful to have someone, you know, going through that process, you know, for me, ahead of me, alongside of me as a human here and, and having that, um, revelation experiencing the grace of this supposedly horrible yeah. event and this is what if we are coming from original blessing like you're offering us we can have if not it's his fault they had a stroke <laughs> you know yeah. 
And too bad for him. I mean, he must have done something to cause this this natural disease to take over and he shouldn't have done that and and um and like you said earlier that is actually almost easier mm-hmm. than having to come to terms with that and having uh, i'm putting words in his mouth a little bit but having to you know from his perspective having to even be surrounded by his his community and him being like no 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 <laughs> The stroke isn't the bad thing, you know. I'm more. I'm the resurrection here is the, actually the painful part. This right, is the that's part, the part. <laughs> this is the challenging thing. My, you know, my arm is doesn't work, and my leg doesn't work, and my voice doesn't work. But like, what happened to my relationship with God? Yeah. And so, how do you see? Um. How do you see? In your in your path, in your practice, in your helping and serving of others, how do you see that unfolding in the church, in the Christian church? Like, how do you, how do you see that being able, the structures being put in place or for people to, to go through this transition, this shift of perspective mm-hmm. and to stay with the faith, to stay, to stay with the Christian faith? Yeah, and I do think that that's the big shift that's happening, particularly for people who grew up in maybe more um, traditional conservative environments, is that, you know, so many of the people, as I mentioned, that that ended up coming to my church were had grown up so fundamentalist, and so they were like, what if the Bible isn't literally true, you know, which is death, which is a death for them, mm-hmm. if they had so much trust in it. Mm-hmm. And they thought there wasn't actually a real snake or, you know, an Adam and Eve or a flood or fill in the blank, whatever, you know, can I believe any of it? And Mm. you have to walk people through that death and help them trust that there's this resurrection and that it's really hard. But then when you get to reclaim scripture as something more beautiful than it was before when it was so limited, just you will be so glad for it, you know? And I certainly seen in the context of this book in particular, you know, um, talking about the cross, which is the sticking point for people with original sin in the West. They're like, well, then what did Jesus die for if not for my sin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't get it. Like, what? why would God do that, you know? And so that brings up just a whole bunch of questions for people. And that is in itself a kind of death, which is just layers of metaphor. Like, I'm having a death about Jesus's death. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, right trying to help people move through that and say, what if it could be so many things? What if Jesus's death meant so many things that we Hmm. 2000 years later are still trying to figure out all the things that it means. And so I always try to advocate for not less meanings, but more meanings just in Hmm. general about anything scriptural. Hmm. (laughs) And certainly that's true for the cross, which as one of my um, favorite theologians said was like an apocalypse, like the actual apocalypse. Because yeah, I like die. that. Too. Like, how does God die? Who even thought that was possible? <laughs> you know, head explosion. Um, and so how could that possibly just mean this one thing? And so sure, mm-hmm. sin has part to do with it, but it's really about life and death and it's about power and it's about vulnerability and it's about mm-hmm. being the people who who can handle being in the face of suffering. And it's about Jesus being someone who's in solidarity with those who suffer. And it's about, 
just so many things, you know, and I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's an act of death for people to have to let go of the certainty of what they think those things are. Um, but Mm. you have to let go of those things to receive the resurrection of the fullness of what all it could be, you know, Mm. of all the things it could mean. And it is really hard to get people to, to let go of the, that certainty that they feel, you know, even when it's really feeling shaky, people really hold on to it. And, um, all I can say is that the people that I've walked through that and along, you know, alongside that as a minister was, it's a very holy and sacred thing to do. And I'm always delighted at what gets returned to them when they are brave enough to make that journey, but Mm. it is a bravery. And so I think part of it too, is just knowing that sometimes people are ready, (laughs) Mm. people are brave and ready, and sometimes they're not. And that doesn't mean they're not brave. It just maybe means that they're not brave enough right now. Mm. And it might be in their best self-interest to to hold on to something that feels stable because of other things going on, you know? Mm. So, okay, hold on to that doctrine for as long as you need to, but just know that when you need to drop it, it's fine, you know? So I think it's discernment in that too, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Ramdas says we'll wait. <laughs> yeah. He says go ahead, carry on with that. We'll wait. Like yes. there's no rush. It's all it's already there, so go ahead, we'll wait. Yes. Exactly. And and I love how you're putting it that it can mean so many things. And again, this is radical. This is threatening and you know, how could how could Jesus part, you know, pardon the criminal, you know, at the same time as he calls out the taxpayer? How could he be with the prostitute at the same time as, you know, Yes, this is it. This is complicated. And, and, um, you know, the, the guru, the Neem Karoli Baba, the guru is Ramdas's guru. And, um, and, and now my guru as well, he uh, often said, follow the teachings of Christ, (laughs) (laughs) but he was really well known or well known. He's known for, for contradictions. Yes. Forgiving so one forgiving one devotee one instruction and another another or even the same devotee different contradictory guidance, you know? And that turning you back really what that ultimately does is turns you forces you back in to yes. your own connection with the one, you know, with spirit. And that is so disorienting. <laughs> especially you know for me it's been I've, I've been a seeker since I was young and really was into the church you know and then you know carried on and, and for me that has been the most difficult argument that I've had in in my own spiritual practice is this desire for consistency mm, why am I getting yeah. this guidance and then I'm getting this guidance and why is this right. <laughs> and that that from my experience of of the christian church is probably even more radical than offering original blessing (laughs) (laughs) yeah consistency is really important to the lutherans yes definitely (laughs) yeah they're like this is all gonna line up and equal at the end yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yes and i i really try to encourage people as i can if invited into their spiritual questions yeah to maybe release a little bit of that desire for consistency and instead replace it with a desire for integrity. Hmm. Because I think integrity holds together what you need from consistency, which is 
you don't want to follow a moron, right? Like you don't want your guru <laughs> to be a sham or an idiot, you know, uh, but at the same time, you can expect it to go from A to B to C to D, because actually if, if you're, if you're guru or the, the person that you're trying to look up to spiritually is wise, they will point out contradiction because that is wisdom. And that goes again back to the point of the garden, which is there is a fruit literally designed to hold the knowledge of good and evil together in it. And that fruit is what wisdom comes from. And so Hmm. the idea that we're ever going to have consistency when the fruit that is designed to give us wisdom has both good and evil in it is you know, the world just wasn't made that way. Mm. Even if we look at that as mythically as possible, right? We look at the news and realize, well, yeah, yes, good and evil. Tangled time. And again, that pursuit of wisdom is to figure out what needs to be said or done at what moment, you know, which is integrity. Right. Even if you did something different the day before, with the same situation, but it, you used the opposite thing, but that was because that was the right thing to do. Right. So. Which again, you know, is a, is a, is a skill of parenting, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And a thing that children revile, revolt against. You told me, you told him he couldn't do that. And now you're saying I can, you know, that definitely, (laughs) And yeah. there, there is a love logic to it, you know, there is a yeah. love logic to the individual um, instruction. So um, this has just been great, but let's just wrap up a little bit here. The last chapter, living into this blessing, right? This is kind of what we're leading into now. So we've decided we're going to turn our perspective to being blessed and sin as a as a corrective, as grist for the mill, right? And now we have to practice living that way. So what does that look like for you in the day-to-day? Or how does it look to practice living from the place of original blessing? Most of all, for me, it's remembering that the world is so interconnected. Hmm. Um, So when I get really mad at something in the news... I created as an other in my mind. Well, that guy, you know, the head of the EPA is, does not agree with what I would do in that position. You know, Hmm. it's all, it's all against. And even though there's truth in that, that I think that I don't agree what the head of the EPA is currently doing to help our environment. Um, I find that living into blessing requires me to not let it just stay at that at that sort of separation, but just to say, so I see wisdom in this and I'm disagreeing with what I see in that. And how does that connect with what I do today? And so maybe the most healthy thing I can do is not be angry in this moment. at something that I have no actual control other over, over other than voting later, but today I can choose to be even more connected to the environment, you know? Hmm. So I can, I can't, I mean, my anger is going to get me really nowhere except for just to remind me of what's important. So I allow it in as much as it reminds me that the environment's really important to me. And so today, maybe I double down on trying to be mindful of um, how connected I feel to the environment and then finding ways to, to be active in places that I do actually have authority. But 
yeah, I try to remember that even even in the mm. opposite of me, that there's a connection back to me and that I really want the best for that person too, which is hard. <laughs> the thing about praying for your enemies is just real hard. <laughs> mm. So um, yeah, that's maybe another thing that I do is I try to I try to find ways to, mm. to see what's blessing even and maybe especially when I'm really angry. That doesn't mean I excuse I excuse things, right? There's natural consequences, but um, but I try to not hold on so tightly to that that I that I forget that the world is deeply connected and run by love and you know capable of goodness. Hmm. So. Right. So even in that, it, again, back to that separation. Even in that separation of that disagreement can choose to continue going mm-hmm. in the d- direction of disagreement, or it can be the reminder to you of what is true. Yeah. Which is that we're all connected. Yeah. That this is all interrelated. And then the action from that, the living into that, the practice is how can I serve my relationship with the environment today? <laughs> right. You know, and um, you're right. I mean, that is the practice of living that out. And also I would say the practice of this moment of transitioning from the belief of being wicked to the belief of being love. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much the majority of culture (laughs) that we're presented with is is really working towards keeping us in separation mm-hmm. and so our our communities our our groups our satsangs our churches our practices become more and more important in these moments to keep that practice moving and evolving and that resurrection supported <sighs> So, <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you if, if you had something specific that you wanted to offer to women and girls that are on the spiritual path. That I, I would love I, I, I would love to have a whole conversation about the the feminine spirit energy and Mother Mary. I mean that when we need. Yeah. Love to have another. Love to have another hour sometime to just talk only about that. Yes, let's do. The yeah. spirit's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually that's what I would offer is to say know um, that Sophia wisdom is embodied as uh, a beautiful woman, and not not for some outer reason, but because the light in Sophia wisdom shines so brightly and so true that it is something that um, is naturally attractive, not, you know, falsely attractive or Hmm. um, shallowly attractive, but is, is a natural Hmm. something that people, all people are, um, are drawn toward. And that um, I would want women to trust their souls, trust their bodies, trust that they mm. have within them this connection to the divine that will guide them exactly where they need to go mm. um, if they would just listen. So, 
I would say give yourself space to be silent and to get to know your soul and listen to what it's saying because it will steer you in the right direction. That's absolutely perfect. And I love that you shared that the wisdom and truth has its own beauty and that that shining through is naturally attractive. Oh man. Well, I, I, um, I'm super appreciative for your time, Danielle. And like, really, really happy that I miraculously stumbled upon (laughs) your book and your writing and that you were available to, to talk with me through this. And, um, I've already recommended your book to several, several people. And for those of you listening, you'll be able to go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com and find links to to purchase Danielle's book, Original Blessing, and and her website and all that will be there too. And I thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. So I'm so glad the universe brought us together. <laughs> Same. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.